life is frustrating at times. Uh, How's that for an opening line, right? Uh, Maggie and I are reading a book together called Sleep Smarter, and I hate it. Um, It's the worst. Uh, Want a good night's sleep? Basically, you need to take away all the happy things from your life. Like, that's, that's, that's the requirement. You shouldn't drink coffee. You shouldn't drink alcohol. You shouldn't snack after 7 p.m., unless it's a low-carb snack. Like, clearly, the author doesn't know what snacks are. Like, the, 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 like that's, that's what a late-night snack is. Um, avoid screens after 8 p.m., and make sure you're asleep by 10 p.m., because the best hours for sleep are 10 to 2. Well, I'm a parent, and the happiest time of my life is between 10 and 2. Like, um, the book is so frustrating. And I say that um, uh, partially because I'm stubborn and lazy and don't want to change, but also because it feels like uh, in order to meet my need for better sleep, I have to ignore so many other needs. Um, And you just experience that a lot when you're trying to cultivate a healthy life. Um, so often it feels like trying to spread pizza dough when you don't have enough where you, you get it to the edge and then it rips in the middle and then you try to fix that one and it rips over here. Um, or like when you're assembling a piece of Ikea furniture and you strip the screw. Have you ever done this before? It's infuriating, right? Uh, in our house, we have a trundle bed and everything looks great except for a drawer that won't close all the way because there's a strip screw that can't go in all the way or be pulled out. And it still works, technically speaking, right? But it's not like the picture in the catalog. It's not how it's supposed to work. And that is how life on earth feels, where we're born with a catalog in our soul, right? We have this intuitive idea that we know what life is supposed to be like. There's a a picture in our minds. Uh, Maybe we have an instruction manual with steps that shows us how to get there, but the reality never matches. We're given ingredients that just don't work. And so we're sort of trying to work around stripped screws and limits. And maybe it matches for a little bit, but just not for any length of time. And then, of course, sometimes it doesn't just not match, right? It's more than frustrating. Life can be tragic. It can be terrible. Maybe that is where you're at right now, where there is trauma that you are enduring. And so we ask ourselves, why is life like this? Why is it not just wrong, but you can see what should be right, and you're, you're trying to get there, but you can't get there? Our passage today from Romans 8 reminds us that God is ultimately the cause of life's frustrations. Human bondage to sin is the reason, but God is the one who subjected creation to futility. He decided that the world shouldn't work as it should. We see this, this is Romans 8 is is a reflection on Genesis 3, the curse. And to Adam, God said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But then wildly in Romans 8, Paul tells us that this is good news for humanity actually. Because why did God do this? He did it in hope. That is the reason that he frustrated creation. God subjected creation to frustration in hope. If God had not cursed the material world, but let it flourish without humanity, it would have signaled God giving up on humanity, that he would be happy for the world to work exactly as it should, even though our souls would have been completely destroyed and corrupt. 
God could have done that. Maybe the world would have been better off without humanity. But God didn't, he didn't need humans to run the world, but that wasn't his vision from Genesis 1. That's what he wanted to get back to, was that vision of humanity ruling over a perfect world, created in the image of God, his children. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so the placement of humanity, a people created with the unique capacity to be loved and loved by God. No other creature has the same capacity to be loved and loved by God. And that was the difference between creation being good. Creation was good on days one through five, but after day six, it was very good. And so God was not willing to settle for just a good creation. He wanted a very good creation. He was not willing for creation to flourish without humanity, and so he frustrated it. And it remains frustrated, groaning for the redemption of mankind until humanity is finally freed from sin and able to flourish alongside her and can take up the mantle that it was originally given to rule. And when that day finally comes, it will be glorious. That's the text in a nutshell. That's the sermon in a nutshell. And so let's pray as we move into it. Dear Father, we are thankful for Romans 8. We are challenged by our experience of a frustrated world, of a world that has been clearly obvious to everyone, subjected to futility. And then we come and learn that you subjected it. And that is often hard for us to receive. And so I pray that the Spirit would help us remember who you are, that you are good, all good, that you are all wise, that you are all powerful, that you are God and I am not. Help us to remember that. And then to remember that you subjected it in hope and to believe that and to experience some of that hope ourselves. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Open our eyes. Amen. Last week, CJ's text concluded with a reference to suffering. Um, it, it opened up this text. And so if we look back, verse 16, it says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that he may we may also be glorified with him. And so CJ preached last week about the glories of adoption, about how Christ's death and resurrection opens up God's family to us, to sinners, where we should be cast out, not only of his family, but of his kingdom, but because of Christ's death on the cross, because he paid for our sins, we are forgiven and adopted. Um, J.I. Packer famously said that while forgiveness certainly is the ground of the gospel, it's the foundation of the gospel, the highest glory of the gospel is our adoption. 
that that is what is the, uh, the ultimate gift, that we would be adopted and called children of God. Um, the, so in adoption, our debt is canceled. There's a transfer of power. We're freed from sin and fear and death. And verse 17 promises that adoption and its benefit to us, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, Paul has spent a good bit of Romans 8 and Romans sort of talking about the dynamic of suffering, of living by the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, that sort of dynamic. And so now in verse 18, he pivots, he turns his attention to glory. And so verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that is a remarkable statement because the sufferings of the world are so big. And so for him to say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to come. And some of us, depending on the suffering you're experiencing right now, might even consider that insensitive for him to say that. Who does Paul think he is? Like, what does Paul even know? He doesn't know the depths of grief that I'm experiencing right now. He doesn't know about my chronic pain, about my suicidal thoughts, about the trauma from my family. He doesn't know what I'm experiencing. But friend, he's not claiming to know the depths. In fact, that's the whole point. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be, to be revealed. And that means Paul doesn't have to know the ins and outs of what you're experiencing before writing Romans 8.18. He doesn't need to know. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the future glory is that great. Because of how big it is, it's that good. It's that amazing. It's that wonderful, that glorious, so much so that no amount of suffering that you could be experiencing on your part, on my part, is even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. It's indescribable. If you follow the news, you know that Congress has been trying to pass an infrastructure bill, if you like politics. Um, and they're monstrous, right? Uh, there's two, actually. So there's one that's $1.2 trillion, and then the second one started out at $3.5 trillion. I think now they're like to $1.8 or something. Um, and we throw these numbers around, but they are almost unfathomable to human beings. Um, we have a big number problem as humans. Um, and so to illustrate that, if, it, if you think about it, 1 million seconds is 11 and a half days. 1 billion seconds is 31 and three-quarter years. And one trillion seconds is 31,710 years. And so we sort of hear the numbers and all, they all rhyme. So they must be kind of close to each other, right? But they're not, they're so far. And there was this great YouTube video back in 2009 when Obama had proposed uh, a really large budget, three and a half trillion is the largest at the time. And at the same time that he proposed this large budget, he also, to sort of a show of good faith that he wasn't um, irresponsible, he said, you know what, my administration is gonna spend 90 days scouring the federal government to find $100 million to cut from the budget. And uh, this guy put together this video to sort of put that in perspective. And if you took one of the big recycling um, bins, the big blue bins, they're 94 gallons, and if you filled that with water, 
Cutting $100 million from $3.5 trillion is like taking two teaspoons of water out of the 94-gallon drum. <laughs> like, that's, the, that's how uh, uh, much of a spendthrift he was promising to be. It's hardly worth mentioning, right? Like, it sounds impressive. $100 million sounds like a lot, and it is compared to my budget, but it's not a lot compared to the federal budget. Romans 8.18 and the Bible broadly teaches that our present suffering is like two teaspoons compared to the trillions of gallons of glory that will be revealed at the coming of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And Paul doesn't say that to minimize your suffering. Your suffering is great. The world's suffering is great, but God's glory is that much greater. It's ironic, but our very suffering points to how great the glory is. You see that in Romans 8, 19 through 20. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. He's explaining to us how we can know this to be true. And so what does it mean for the creation to be subjected to futility? Well, the NIV translates uh, that word, metanoitete, as frustration. And I think frustration is a, a helpful word because it depicts a material world which instinctually knows what it's supposed to do. It inherently knows what it's here for. It's striving to do it, but it just can't get there. It's frustrated. Its purposes are thwarted. Creation knows what it's here for, knows what it's been created for, the beauty and glory of its divine purpose, but its intentions are being actively thwarted and frustrated. The creation is being kept from flourishing. And whether you're a Christian or not, this is how you experience the world. This is how people talk about their daily life, right? You may not know why creation is frustrating, but you feel its frustrations. You know that your body doesn't work the way it should work, that your relationships don't work the way it should work. Your city, your culture, our world, there is this standard that you have in your mind and I have in my mind, and, and everything falls short of it. So natural disasters, for example, are never experienced as natural, right? We don't experience them as just an expected thing. Hurricanes and earthquakes and forest fires are not the way the world is supposed to be. Neither do our bodies receive disease as just part of the circle of life, right? Our bodies fight against disease. Our organs do everything they can for as long as they can to keep death at bay because creation knows that life is meant to be forever, the whole creation groans for resurrection. Whether we do or not, the material world is fighting for eternal life. This groaning was part of C.S. Lewis's conversion story. Initially, like so many atheists, he saw the presence of needless suffering in the world as evidence against the existence of God. Clearly, um, how could there be an all-powerful, all-good God over such a fallen world as this? But then he realized that this complaint boomeranged back on him. He said, the defiance of the good atheist hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos is really an unconscious 
homage to something in or behind that cosmos which he recognizes as infinitely valuable and authoritative. For if mercy and justice were really only private whims of his own with no objective and impersonal roots, and if he realized this, he could not go on being indignant. But the fact is that he was indignant, and rightfully so. Like, we are indignant. The Bible is full of divinely inspired indignation at the brokenness of the world. And the good news of Scripture is that God is indignant with us that he agrees that there is something deeply wrong and he has set himself to fixing it. And that is our hope, that God would remake the world and that he would do so while also remaking us. Not remake the world by removing us from the world, which would be one option, but to keep us here. The Bible describes this eternal hope as shalom. Shalom is the end goal of the world. And in our English Bibles most often translate the word shalom as peace, but it's more than just peace of mind. It's more than just a ceasefire, right? It's universal flourishing. Uh, Neil Plantinga writes, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as the creator and savior opens doors and speaks welcome to the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom is the way things are supposed to be. And every person on the planet, we might disagree on details, but we all have this shared conviction of what it should be. I was thinking about, you know, uh, Star Wars and Star Trek and all these, when we, when we imagine other worlds, they look a lot like our world. There is, they're not fundamentally different. The Ten Commandments are still good and righteous no matter what world you dream up because that's shalom. That's why sin is so destructive. It's the vandalism of shalom. But it doesn't take much for us to see through the vandalism to the glory that once was there. And so it may be all marked up, but we can see with our imagination, with our hearts, what this building was supposed to be, what this person was supposed to be. And Christians believe that this is the glory that will be when God finally redeems redeems man and renews the material world. This is the hope of Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Uh, Tim Keller writes, this passage suggests that once human beings turned from God, there were only two alternatives, either immediate destruction or a path that led to redemption through great loss, grief, and pain not only for human beings, but for God himself. And so creation's judgment does not represent God's abandonment of us. Rather, his judgment of the world was purposeful. Even as he judged the world with suffering, he had in view a plan for the redemption of all things through suffering, right? Through the suffering of Christ, the world is redeemed. God judged the world in hope of a final redemption from evil that would be glorious. So I ask you to pause. Is this the meaning you make of creation's frustrations or your own frustration? Do you look in faith beneath the vandalism 
beneath the sadness and tragedy and futility, do you see a great glory, hidden, obscured, maybe marred, but waiting to be revealed, groaning to be revealed, eagerly waiting the return of Jesus? All of the material universe is waiting for Jesus to be revealed. All of it. Take a, take a moment to imagine a fully renewed world. A world without death, without disease, without pain, without offense. A world where want and need are always matched. So that no one ever goes without. Not because they have everything at their fingertips, but because they live in a community of love and sharing. A world completely healed of its past, devoid of war and the memory of war and the fear of it. A world where culture is the joyful cultivation of God's creation. And so there's good food and good art and good music and good technology, good gardens, good sports, good stories. A world without sin. I even just think about myself, like what if I was without sin? <laughs> During COVID, we did learning cohorts and one of the ones that I participated in was on the 10 commandments. And each week we would take a commandment and one of the things we would do is we would imagine what would society be like if this commandment was perfectly honored? What would the church be like and what would I be like? If no one committed adultery, no one ever objectified anyone based on their physical appearance. If no one murdered anyone, if no one hated anyone, became sinfully angry, if no one stole, either as a sin of commission actively taking or a sin of omission failing to give, but everyone held their stuff with right proportion. If everyone gave honor to whom honor was due, and if every parent was honorable, if no one coveted. It is wild to think of a sinless world. And of course, intimacy with God, where God, like he did with Adam and Eve, walks with you in the cool of the garden, where you get a hug from Jesus. I cannot wait being a member of a perfectly loving family with God as father, Jesus as brother king, and the spirit filling everyone. Man, an eternity spent in that kind of world, you can't really not agree with Paul that the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing. And I encourage you to spend time regularly imagining that world. The Christian tradition and the Bible, man, has this record of people using metaphors to imagine what that world will be, a land flowing with milk and honey. I don't know what the updated 21st century version of that is for you. Flowing with milk and honey is not going to be my jam, but what is that for you when you imagine San Francisco perfectly redeemed? And San Francisco has so many great things. It's already kind of a garden city, right? And so 
What if it was without sin? What if it was perfectly restored? What if there wasn't this sense to, to meet one need, compromises another, but there was the abundance of God's graciousness everywhere apparent? This is why we follow Christ. This is why we long for him to come again. Romans 8 teaches us not only does creation groan, but we groan. Verses 22 and 23, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We are people who have tasted in the gospel through the Spirit the beginning of our own resurrection the best moments of communion and intimacy with Jesus. Imagine that exploded to an infinite amount and let that create longing in you, groaning. You've experienced the fruit of the Spirit in your life. What if that was all the time? You've experienced the grace of God who loves you despite your sin. You've had moments where you've been free from condemnation and from shame without loneliness, without fear. What if that was forever? Let your suffering channel your longing. This passage in scripture broadly requires that Christians keep in balance two truths simultaneously to hold two of them. First, creation is fundamentally good and we were made for it. Christianity is not a religion that denies the importance of the material world. As citizens, we do, there's a nine-month leadership program that we started called Surge, and this Friday, our reading for the week included this. It said, human beings were created to enjoy fellowship with God in the context of creational life. We were created as the crown of this creation God took delight in his creation and created humankind to be like him so they too could enjoy its rich variety. That enjoyment would come as they cared for the creation and developed its potential to more and more reveal his glory. This is our purpose, to love God in the context of create, created life, bodies, right? And so that means that there is no part of our redemption our justification, sanctification, glorification, there's no part of it that should happen apart from creation. That we are created embodied people and our redemption must be created and embodied. That's what's so scandalous about the incarnation when God becomes flesh. That's what's so scandalous about the resurrection, right? That Christ would defeat death, not by escaping his body, but by resurrecting it, that God would become man and stay man forever. People laughed at Jesus. They laughed at Paul because they, didn't, they couldn't imagine a heaven that included material bodies. But Christianity celebrates the material world. I couldn't think of any other religion, and, and you helped me. I was, this is on Friday morning, and I was just sort of like, I can't think of any other religion whose heaven is a renewed earth. It's all sort of somewhere else. Like we're gonna leave this behind and go somewhere else over here. Um, I'd appreciate if you know, but many religions tend to have this sort of like glorified ethereal place. And that's just not true for Christians. As Christians, we are called to stubbornly hold on to this place, to care for it, to pray for it, to fight for it, because creation, it might be vandalized, but it is fundamentally good and we were made for it. And so we're not pie in the sky, burn it all down, all fly away people. 
We are earthy people, body people. The world's redemption is tied up with ours. And so we care about the environment. We care about society, about culture, about family, about ritual, about bodies, about emotions, about brains, because creation is good and we were made for it. The second truth, which we have to keep in balance with the first, is that creation will not be redeemed until the work of the Spirit is completed in the return of Christ. And so while creation is good, we know that ultimately we have to wait for Jesus to come again. Even as we celebrate the material, even as we fight for shalom and decry the vandalism of peace, we know that the last enemy to be defeated is death and defeating death is beyond our ability. Creation won't be liberated from its bondage to decay, which is death, until Christ returns and sin is vanquished. Uh, The theologian Jonathan Wilson says, sciences that expect peace and orderliness, orderliness in this world are mistaken. Those that seek orderliness are mistaken about our place in history. Those that use the absence of peace and orderliness to argue against God and Christ are likewise mistaken. Violence, chaos, breakdown within a particular kind of order are precisely what we should expect of a creation that is not yet fully redeemed. And so we expect creation to be frustrated. We're not shocked by it. But we let that frustration channel us to a deep groaning for the coming of Christ. Creation cannot be very good again until mankind is very good. And mankind cannot be very good until Christ comes back. And until then, our role as Christians is to bear witness to that very good day with our words and lives and to find moments. We may not be able to establish it forever, but to find and celebrate the very good moments that come from the first fruits of the Spirit in us. And we pray with creation that Christ would come quickly. How are you experiencing the tension of these two truths? Are you keeping them in balance where you are valuing the material world? You're not denying your uh, place your uh, embodiedness. You receive creation as a gift of God, deeply good, so that we love creation and its fruits. We love our bodies and its limits. We love culture, all that's created from creation. Not blaming the thorns on God, but letting the thorns channel our longing for the future still placing our ultimate hope in the gospel, believing that nothing short of the return of Christ can make the world tr- truly flourish. This, allow, this story, the story of God, is a way more uh, accurate and fulfilling and ex- explanatorily powerful. Um, that's a terrible phrase. Um, it has so much more power if we would live in it and share it. Um, that's one interesting thing is that at the birth of Christianity, one of the things that led to its explosion was that it had a better uh, understanding of suffering, a better explanation than any other Stoic or Greek or um, philosophical system because it's, it didn't dismiss it and say, well, we just don't even care about our bodies. It doesn't even matter. And so the idea is you just sort of float above it and it's okay. No, bodies are so important. Creation is so important. The world is so important. And yet it's broken. 
And we need the gospel where God answers that brokenness by suffering and taking us through to resurrection on the other side. And so are we channeling our frustration into a deep longing for Jesus and sharing that with other people? Not as a way to escape the material world, but as the only path to its renewal. Of course, in all this, we have the problem of God. Where is God in our frustration? It is good news that our present suffering isn't worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. But for a lot of us, we're still left uneasy that it was God who subjected the creation to frustration, to futility. And it's God who continues that subjection by delaying Christ's coming. And so the problem of evil is a real one. And I don't pretend to offer you a satisfactory answer. Um, I can't explain in a detailed way why God has allowed specific sufferings that you have faced. I can't explain in a detailed way why God has permitted any particular human suffering. And I don't think the Bible really offers um, a full detailed explanation. Those are things that are hidden in the mind of God. And so it's hard to hold on to faith in the midst of suffering, even when we believe that the coming glory is gonna be great because suffering's still so hard. But one of the beautiful contributions of Paul in Romans 8, and, and I'll leave with this, is verse 26. It says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so we are not the only ones involved in our suffering. A lot of times when we think of the gospel, we can imagine the pain and suffering of God the Father sending the Son. We can feel that. We can imagine the pain of Jesus who lays his life down in death for our sins on the cross. And, and in Romans 8, we learn some of the suffering of the Spirit. How does he join in the burden of redemption? He groans with us. So it's not just creation that groans. It's not just we who groan, but the Spirit groans when we can't name it. When I don't know what to say, the Spirit intercedes for me with groanings too deep for words. As the Spirit labors to sustain the world, to redeem the world and bring it to its perfect flourishing, he groans with us. Friend, you are never alone in your suffering. He may not explain it all to you, but he is with you. When God chose to redeem the world and not destroy it, to subject creation to futility and labor sovereignly for your salvation, he committed himself to intercede for you with groanings too deep for words. He committed to join with you in Christ, the mission of Christ as he took on flesh, and in the Spirit, as the Spirit indwells you and groans with you. But unlike creation and unlike us, he is not frustrated. God's groanings are not from frustration. God cannot be frustrated. No one will keep the Spirit from accomplishing his work. Right now, he is finishing the good work he began. What the Father planned, the Son accomplished. What the Son accomplished, the Spirit will complete. And the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. They are two teaspoons out of trillions of gallons of glory that will be revealed. Let's pray. 
Dear Father, we are thankful for these four verses and all that they open up to us. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters, friends here who are suffering and their present suffering is great. Father, would you open their hearts to see beneath the vandalism, the violence of sin, the glory that will be revealed, the glory that's possible in a perfectly renewed world. And would you help them see that so that they can simultaneously celebrate the created world, celebrate um, the material, the gifts that you've given us in creation while also longing deeply for the return of Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are frustrated with God this morning, who arrive and are discouraged and angry, wanting an explanation. Father, I pray that even though they might not get an explanation, would they hear the Spirit's groanings? Would they hear how much God labors with us in our suffering? And would that give them great peace, great consolation, great certainty? Father, we love you. We're thankful for the gospel. Thank you so much for not just starting over and eradicating the world. Thank you for not uh, just letting the world go on without humans as a perfectly happy but um, leaderless place. Thank you for doing the long, hard work of redeeming humanity and redeeming us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.